Thank you very much for reading. Good morning, everybody. If you keep um, Genesis open um, on page uh, eight and nine, that's going to be a big help for us as we go through this morning. Um, as Ken said, we're, we're picking up a series uh, that you guys, I think, were doing back in, back in March. So we've got a bit of background in Genesis, and we're picking it up now in chapter 12. And the key question I want us to be thinking about as we, as we re-enter Genesis at this point is, how likely do you think it is that God's plan is going to succeed? How likely do you think it is that God's plan is going to succeed? Uh, what do I mean by God's plan? I mean his plan to gather a great people from all over the world through the teaching of his word in the scriptures to redeem them and to sanctify them through the blood of Jesus and then to take all those people and bring them into an everlasting kingdom called the new creation where they will live with God forever in eternal rest and blessedness and praise. That's a pretty big plan, isn't it? It's quite a big plan to have in our mind as we begin thinking about the promises of God. How likely do you think it is that God's plan is going to succeed? I wonder where you'd put yourself if there was a spectrum. Um, if you, are you 100% on this side, totally certain, totally think it's going to happen? Maybe you're here as a skeptic, you're on this kind of 0%, I'm not sure it's going to happen at all. Or maybe you're kind of somewhere in the middle, the kind of 70 80% category, you're pretty confident, but maybe you're cooking up a bit of a plan B in the background in case it all falls through. What would someone um, think if they were to look at your life and the decisions you made? Would they see evidence of a plan B going on in any of our lives? Um, someone who's hedging their bets or someone who is all in? Hedging our bets, it could manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. So if we were thinking about a, the church as a whole, if you had a church that was doubting God's plan to bring people to himself through the proclamation of his word, um, you'd probably want to make church look a little bit more impressive than it does this morning. I mean, we've got a very nice building here, but maybe we could get a bit of a bigger, bigger light rig, some smoke machines, bigger stage, slightly more engaging public speaker than myself. We want to, we want to make church look more impressive if we think that God's method, God's plan, is going to fail. It's the sort of thing a church might do for a plan B. And if you were an individual and you were doubting God's plan um, to bless you in the new creation, what might you do? You might want to make life now feel a little bit more blessed, just in case you didn't get it later. So you'd probably want to amass a decent amount of wealth and be pretty comfortable, enjoy life in the here and the now. It makes perfect sense. If you felt like God wasn't going to come through, you needed a plan B. It's the sort of very sensible-looking decisions you might entertain. And the purpose of these next few weeks in Genesis is to try to convince us that God's plan is 100% going to succeed. Nothing can stop the plan of God. It's plan A all the way. That's the big headline from Genesis chapter 12 to 15, at least. And the aim of all that is to push us towards trusting in the Lord, to fully, depending on, to fully depend on him and his plan for us and for our lives. When things feel uncertain, when things get difficult in the Christian life, we want to turn to God in prayer and dependence rather than turning to our own plan Bs, which is just our natural inclination. Let's just begin by reminding ourselves where we are in the book of Genesis up until now. We've talked about plan A's and plan B's. We looked like the plan A had gone horribly wrong in Genesis chapter 3. That'll be familiar to most of us, I think. The fall where Adam and Eve turn away from God. Plan A goes horribly wrong. God made a perfect world with a happy people who were blessed and living with him until those people decided to take matters 
into their own hands, and they wrecked it all. They decided they didn't believe in the success of God's plan A. They wanted to be, they wanted to be truly happy, and they wanted to be truly fulfilled. They needed to take matters into their own hands. Adam and Eve effectively take the crown off God's head. They put it on their own head. They think they can make better decisions. They eat that fruit from the tree with disastrous consequences. They thought it would bring them the fullness of life, something like the promises of God plus, but it actually brought total disaster. It brought death to them and to the world. And in Genesis um, chapter 3 to 11, from that point onwards, we've seen the generations of Adam coming from Adam's line, and we've seen the total mess they've made of the world time and time again. And at this point, you're thinking so much for those unstoppable plans of God, right? It's gone horribly wrong. But God wasn't done with his plan at that point, his plan for a good world. Fast forward to chapters 11 and 12. Now, we've seen the generations of Adam are about to be introduced into a new generation, the generations of a man called Terah, a very specific line from the people who were living at the time, the line of Terah. And God is continuing to work out his big, unstoppable plan through him. Now, the, at the beginning of Terah's generation, we probably don't know Terah's name very well, but we do know one of his descendants, Abram, or we probably know him as Abraham, very important man. You've got to know something about Abraham. About half the world's population claims some sort of affiliation with Abraham. Very influential, very important guy. And in this section of Genesis, he seems to then come and take center stage under the name of Abraham. But I want to ask that question, is he really center stage? Is he really center stage? Even though we're going to hear a lot about him, I just want to look at the beginning of Genesis 12. Have a look down at chapter 12, very beginning. I want to just look at a repeated phrase. Ken's already highlighted that God says again and again and again, it's I will. 12 verse 1, go to the land that I will show you. 12 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. 12 3, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse and then a bit further down, just closer to the reading we just had, 12.7, to your offspring, I will give this land. God is introduced as the I, I will God. This is God's plan to bring about the redemption of his good world, making a great nation out of Abraham and making him a blessing to the whole world. And it's going to happen if God makes it happen. It's going to be God who makes it happen. So while Abraham looks like the central character, really the main protagonist throughout this section is God. God acting wonderfully to keep his promises. And Abraham seems to acknowledge that first. Did you notice that? Maybe, I think it was just a bit before our reading, but in 12 verse 8, if you just look at 12 verse 8, he builds an altar to the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord. That's a good thing. He's effectively praying. He's praying to God. If you're convinced that God's the only one who's going to bring about his big plan, then of course you're going to pray to him, aren't you? If you think God's in charge and God's the one who's going to do it all, you're going to pray to him. It's a sign of dependence. Well done, Abraham. That's a good start. And as we go, actually, just at the start of our reading, Abraham's doing all the right stuff. In 12 verse 9, the last thing before our reading, he's journeying through a place called the Negev. That's the south of Canaan in the Promised Land. So he's journeying through the Promised Land. So Abraham is sitting under the promise of God. He is in the right place and effectively doing all the right stuff. It's a good start. Until it all starts to unravel. 
as we'd have got a hint of in our reading. Oh, 12 verse 9, Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord. Just after our reading, 13 verse 4, Abraham again, if you look down, calling upon the name of the Lord. And yet in our passage, calling upon the name of the Lord is strikingly absent. You wouldn't have seen that in the reading. It's strikingly absent. Now, first verse of our reading, 12.10, the revealing of the story arc that kicks this whole problem off. The problem that is about to hit prayerless Abraham is a famine in the promised land. Now, any um, book you read or any movie you've watched has, has this kind of classic um, tale to tell. You have, the, you have the character introduced, you find out a bit of background about them, and there has to be some sort of crisis. Something happens that the characters have to respond to. So this is the crisis moment, this is the initial reveal. Abraham's been set up, and now there's a famine. What's he going to do? <clears throat> this will show us who the characters really are and how they respond. It's not just a famine, is it? It's a severe famine. It's repeated there for emphasis. We're meant to think this is really bad. And you might think, actually, Abraham's response is totally reasonable. He's in a famine-struck land. So where does he go? He goes south to Egypt, the nation immediately to the south, with a massive river running through it, where the famine's not going to be so bad. Plentiful food is the obvious rational choice for Abraham to take, except for the one big problem, that he has just left the land the Lord has promised him, and he hasn't asked the Lord whether that is the right thing to do. So you're meant to have danger signs here. He has left the promised land, and he hasn't asked the Lord whether that is the right thing to do. And we know it's a mistake because of the problem that happens as a result of it. Again, this is like a classic kind of story arc, isn't it? You have the crisis. It seems to be resolved about an hour into the movie. You think, what's going to happen next? But it's a fake horizon. Actually, the bigger problem, the plot twist is just around the bend. It's going to get worse. And the characters have got to respond again. Here we go. Here's the plot twist. Verse 11. He's escaping from the famine. And when they're about to enter Canaan, he says to Sarai, his wife, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. So Abraham spots a flaw in his plan to avoid death. He flees death by famine, only to be threatened by death at the hands of covetous Egyptians. It hasn't gone to plan. But now Abraham does have a second opportunity to redeem himself, doesn't he? Because at this point, he could turn to the Lord and call upon him again, and he could pray to him again. But he doesn't do that. Rather than asking the I will promise giver for help, Abraham devises a lie, or at least a half-truth, because we know he is related to Sarai. But he says that she'd say that you are my sister rather than my wife. Now, they are husband and wife. It's a blatant lie. And you can tell this is an almighty mistake because of the way the author of Genesis keeps rubbing our noses in the fact that Sarai is Abraham's wife. So if you look down again, verse 11, 12 verse 11, Sarai, his wife. Verse 12, this is his wife. Verse 17, Sarai, Abraham's wife. Verse 18, your wife. Verse 19, here is your wife. Verse 20, they sent him away with his wife. Do you get the point? What a stupid thing for Abraham to have done, to have offered his wife effectively to Pharaoh by saying she was his sister. This gets Abraham and Sarai in a terrible mess. 
No, Abraham. It's uncomfortable. He seems to do quite materially well out of the arrangement. He gets lots of oxen and lots of servants and seems to be quite blessed. But at what cost to Sarai, his poor wife? She's now married off to another man. And at what cost to the promises that God had made to Abraham? They now seem to be in tatters. This is a disastrous situation, but it's driven by Abraham's sin in the face of fear. And he starts to unravel all the promises that God's just made. Let's just think about them in turn. So Abraham and Sarai, they're meant to be in an active relationship with God. God's blessed them, but they're not calling upon his name at all. They're meant to be in the promised land of Canaan, but now they're stuck in Egypt. And Sarai's in a, an Egyptian harem. She can't escape. How are they going to get out? Abraham and Sarai, they can't have children because Sarai's now married to another man. This is grotesque. And finally, Abraham, he's meant to be a blessing to the nations, but what we're about to see is actually he ends up bringing curses upon the, the nation of Egypt rather than the blessings of God. So there's no relationship with God. They're in the wrong land. They can't have the offspring they've been promised. And now they're bringing curses in the world rather than blessings. What a mess. Abraham's made of his life, of Sarai's life, of the people of Egypt, and of the blessings of God. All because Abraham, he turned away in fear from trusting God's unstoppable plan. He didn't call upon the name of the Lord, and he came up with a plan B. What makes you think God's plan's going to fail? What is it that makes you think God's plan is going to fail? When are we tempted to think that God's plan might fail and turn to our own plan Bs, our own initiatives, rather than turning to God for help? When we do that, we end up getting ourselves into a terrible mess. Consider um, the fear that God's church wouldn't grow. Church doesn't feel terribly strong, doesn't it? It feels quite weak. The fear that church isn't going to grow. If we were, a church, if we were afraid the church wasn't going to grow and God wasn't going to keep his promise to us, we might be tempted to hatch all sorts of plan B schemes to make it work, to make it seem more humanly appealing. We'll all recognize that temptation to make Christianity more socially acceptable, more polite, more inoffensive, in order to make the gospel more appealing. I've seen that in the Church of England, with its move away from orthodox teaching in the area of sex and marriage and moving towards more a liberal sexual ethic. There's less need to call out sin if you move with the times. It seems a little bit more appealing as a plan B, doesn't it? We've seen that in churches that look more like music festivals than church gatherings of a congregation of Christians. That idea of making church more experientially thrilling because that's a more appealing plan B. Or when we speak to our friends, are we ever tempted to um, take out the harder parts of Scripture, just omit, omit them because they're uncomfortable in the conversation, talk of um, hell and judgment and repentance? They don't tend to go down terribly well in a conversation. Um, did you ever worry that God's plan to grow the church through his word in Scripture might fail? And just that temptation to sugarcoat things. That's a plan B. When we forget that nothing can stop God's plan, we end up trapped in a snare. In that case, it's the snare of satisfying cultural preferences. We try to save ourselves and God from the shame of rejection, and we end up in an uncomfortable cultural allegiance. Just like Abraham, actually, in his attempt to save himself and the plans of God, because he needed to stay alive, he couldn't be killed. He found himself trapped in a really uncomfortable allegiance with Pharaoh, 
accepting all those oxen and sheep and servants? At what cost? And consider the fear that God wouldn't keep his promise to us personally as Christians. That maybe God won't really redeem me and forgive me and he won't really bring me home to the new creation. That's, that's not going to work. Um, so we need to take matters into our own hands and we, we need to grasp something of the blessings of heaven now and we need to bring heaven down to earth, a bit like Abraham who ended up with all those sheep and oxen and servants. He, he would have looked like very blessed, wouldn't he? He would look like his life would have flourished. But he'd actually died to all the promises of God. It's really sad. Maybe we try similarly to bring um, heaven down to earth. Maybe we find security in all sorts of things. It could be wealth. Um, you can imagine that slippery slope, trying to achieve the kind of the rest that heaven promises in the here and now, um, through things like the comfortable home and the holidays. And we turn and we end up worshipping things that then provide those for us, like the careers and the security of bank accounts, um, the equity in our homes. And we end up giving special attention when we get those emails from the solicitors and the bank. They become draws for our attention. And we've ended up trapped in that snare of materialism without even realizing it. And maybe we've tried to bring heaven down to earth in the form of relationships and satisfaction in relationships, and we've turned to relationships or sexual practices that aren't good for us, uh, that fall outside of God's good plan for marriage between a man and a woman. And we've ended up trapped in the snare of sexual liberation. And like Abraham experienced, when we turn away from the calling upon the Lord and trusting in his plan, we inevitably end up substituting God for something else for our plan B's and we end up worshipping that thing instead whether that is materialism or sexual liberation or it's something else for you we forget the I will promise of God the I will promises of God and we succumb to our fears we make bad choices with bad consequences and we've all done that in some way all of us have done that in some way what great news then that the story does not end there the outcome of Abram's story is not dependent upon Abraham and his terrible choices, but it depends on the unstoppable promises of God. In verse 16, Abraham is wallowing in a nicely decorated moral cesspit. He looks like he's flourishing, but he has ruined his life. He's completely stuffed up his relationship with God. And I wonder if you can relate to that in some way. Respectable looking life, but totally stuffing up your relationship with God. It is good news then that the Lord knows how to rescue us from the mess we make of our lives. Look what he does for Abraham. Verse 17. We'll have that up on the screen. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So the Lord afflicts Pharaoh to get Sarai released and to get Abram back into the right land with her. And you'd be totally reasonable, just as you hear that, to think, oh, that sounds a little bit like the Exodus account that comes a little bit later in the Bible when the Lord afflicts a pharaoh to get his people released from captivity and back into the right land. In both instances, you've got the Lord acting unilaterally 
to rescue his people because of his promises, not because they deserved it, but because of his promises, because he is the I will God. And you'd also be totally reasonable to think, oh, that sounds a little bit like that bit in Genesis 3, because when Pharaoh sends Abram out of the land, he says, what have you done? What have you done? That sounds a little bit like God's words to Adam and Eve when he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. Just before Abram gets kicked out, what have you done? And then just linking those parallels again, when Abram is sent out, he's not sent out with nothing. He sent out with his wife and all that he had. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they weren't kicked out with nothing. They were kicked out with coverings for their shame. The Lord had mercy on them and covered their shame. He gave them animal skins to cover them. And so God sends Abram out in similar fashion, cast out, but not left to shame like he deserved. Rather, he's shown grace and redemption by coming home with all that he had. So we're seeing here a replay of the Garden of Eden, not that long ago in the scriptures, seeing a replay of that. Human beings turning away from God, trusting in themselves, hatching their plan B schemes, and ending in disaster. It's very familiar. But we're also seeing a foreshadow here of the Exodus, God's great redemptive act in the Old Testament. The thing that foreshadows the cross of Jesus Christ itself. In these verses, you're seeing human sin met with God's redemptive grace. Human sin met with God's redemptive grace. This is the gospel in miniature in these verses. And if you look down at 13 verse 4, we mentioned it already, but you'll notice that the Lord leads Abraham exactly back to the spot where he had previously believed and called upon the name of the Lord before the mess of our reading today. 13 verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. So by the end of our section there, God has brought Abraham full circle, back to where he started, but with greater possessions than he had to begin with before the mess he made. How is that possible? How can that be? The answer has to be that God is gracious. He's incredibly gracious to Abraham. He called him back from the moral cesspit, restored him, and blessed him in a way he absolutely did not deserve. As you reflect on your life, on mistakes we've made in our lives because of the times we've doubted the plans of God, let's remember Abraham's life, this episode in his life. Abraham's fear, it led him to turn away from trusting in the Lord, trusting in himself, and he ruined his life. It looked like he had completely ruined his life. But nothing can stop the plans of God. That's what we're going to see again and again in this section. Nothing can stop the plans of God. The Lord knew Abraham, and he knew Sarai, and he'd made promises to them, and God was never going to let his plan be stopped by something as trivial as human weakness and fear. He is God, we are dust. We cannot stop his plan. We cannot stop God's plan. As Christians, we are known by God. And God has made promises to us in Christ. And he's never going to let that plan be stopped by something as trivial as our fear and our weakness. And that's really good news. 
God called Abraham out of darkness, out of that pit of depravity. Just like Adam had ruined his life before him, Abraham looked like he'd ruined his life as well, but God made a promise, and so God made a way. And you might feel like you've made choices that have utterly ruined your life. One way or another, the Lord who has made promises with you, to you in Jesus Christ, will not let you go. He will not let you go. Turn back to him. Now, Abraham ends this dire episode in his life exactly where he started before it all went wrong. Back trusting in the Lord, slate slate wiped clean, a fresh start, covered by grace. And in Christ, we can come back to God. No matter how far down the pit we feel like we've gone by the grace of God, we can come back, we can make better choices with his help. So choose to believe God's promise to you. In those moments of doubt, in those moments of fear, don't turn away from him. Lean into him. Pray to him. Call upon the name of the Lord, as Abraham should. Uh, there's no promise in Scripture, is there, of a, of a trouble-free life for the Christian. We're going to face trials. We're going to face challenges in life. But there is a promise of a perfect life with God that never ends. The new creation promise held out in front of us and in a relationship with the Lord. He is the I will God. Nothing's going to stop his plan. We've got its plan A all the way. So next time we're tempted to invest in our plan Bs, let's remember this episode in Abraham's life. Do the one thing he failed to do when he was afraid that it all might fall apart. Let's call upon the name of the Lord. And let's do that now as we finish in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that nothing can stop your plan for this world. Help us to remember that the success of your promise, it does not depend on us, but it depends on you. Lord, when we fear that your plan for the world might not succeed, when we feel like your plan for our lives will fail, your promises to us, help us to call upon your name. When the church looks weak, we're tempted to hedge our bets about the future. Help us to lay our concerns before you. And help us to live by faith in your good word to us. Lord, please give us courage and keep us close to you in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.